Masterless Men by Janine Booth The masterless men strike cold fear in the soul of the masters resolved that they stay in control. Called up then cast out when the fighting was done with hunger and mastery of fist and of gun. So come ministers and majors to the coin counter's den to take orders to take on the masterless men. Now battle is over, they're no longer required, but the owners move slowly and few men are hired. Their labour power wasted, their families in need, they'll take up rebellion if anyone leads. There's a council of war with the sword and the pen, use the law and use force against masterless men. If the masterless man plays the master at home, then the workers still serve at the Queen's honeycomb, and James Connolly's words will call out from the grave that the working man's wife is the slave of the slave. So come stand up together and fight them again to be masterless women and masterless men. For men need no masters and women no chains, so cast off subservience and all take the reins, and fight for the day when the future belongs to the unbridled people, the masterless throngs. Yes, bring on the future society when the powers with the masterless women and men. The Great Belfast Strike At the beginning of 1919, Belfast experienced the largest and longest industrial dispute in its history. For nearly four weeks, shipyard and engineering workers and corporation employees were out on strike, and Belfast was without light, heat, trams or heavy industry. The TUC had negotiated an agreement with engineering employers for workers to have a 47-hour week from the 1st of January. In a ballot, workers were offered a choice only between 54 and 47 hours. Not satisfied, only a quarter voted. Belfast Shipbuilding and Engineering Workers held mass meetings, calling for a 44-hour week, then, at a meeting on the 4th of January, voted to strike. On the 14th of January, the Federation of Shipbuilding and Engineers and Allied Trades balloted its Belfast members. Over 20,000 shipyard and engineering workers downed tools at midday and marched to the City Hall for a mass meeting, then to their union halls to vote. The result was overwhelming. 1,184 voted for a 47-hour week, 20,225 for a 44-hour week and an unofficial strike to get it, and 558 for the 44-hour week but against the strike. Notice was served on the two shipyards, the engineering employees and Belfast Corporation, that a strike would begin at noon on the 25th of January if the 44-hour week were not conceded. By 5pm on Saturday the 25th of January, the power supply to the trams was cut off and the gas lights were not lit. On Sunday, 8,000 workers gathered at the Custom House steps to support the strike and hear speakers from the newly appointed strike committee. On Monday, a deputation met the corporation, which agreed to shut off the electricity supply to all except the hospitals, for which the strikers agreed to send in a skeleton staff. The gas supply was cut, but workers would staff the plant. 2,000 workers marched to the shipyards to persuade the apprentices and clerical staff to stop work. The yards closed and picket stopped anyone, even company directors, going down Queen's Road without a pass from the strike committee. By the end of the week, nearly 40,000 workers were out and 20,000 laid off due to the strike. There was no gas, electricity or transport. All major factories closed. Newspapers closed or reduced in size and circulation. The strike committee established its own bulletin, publishing 18 issues during the course of the strike. On Tuesday, 
Thousands of workers marched from Carlisle Circus to the city centre for a mass meeting and on Sunday another meeting was held at the Custom House Steps. The strike committee expected that a week without public services would bring the city to its knees and have the prosperous citizens begging the employees to settle. They had not bargained for a drawn-out struggle with workers trying to exist on meagre strike pay, or, in the case of the 5,000 ASE members, no strike pay at all, as their union refused to pay it. The strike committee had a promise of support from the transport workers. If they called them out, commerce would come to a standstill. But the strike committee hesitated, unsure that they could handle the ensuing chaos and organise essential supplies. The transport workers were not called out. The strikers' enemies now moved on to the offensive. The mayor called on corporation workers to return separately. The Belfast newsletter called for a ban on strikes and public services and described the strike leaders as Bolshevists, anarchists and hirelings of Germany. The Grand Orange Lodge of Belfast issued a manifesto, claiming to be neutral but appealing for an immediate resumption of work to await a UK-wide settlement. Despite these attacks, and even the arrival of a lorry load of armed Royal Irish Constabulary men, a huge march of strikers took place on the Tuesday the 4th of February. On Monday the 10th of February, the employers proposed settlement terms. The men would return to work on a 54-hour week, and the employers would call a national conference of engineering employers and recommend to it a working week shorter than 47 hours. If the conference didn't accept, then the Belfast shipyards would settle with their workers independently within three weeks. The strike met setbacks. The ASC executive suspended its Belfast district committee. The federation told shipyard workers to return to work. Labour leader William Adamson, surely the least remembered of all the party's leaders, said that as the speaker for a constitutional party, he would encourage neither revolution nor unofficial action. The government made it an offence to deprive the community of light, or encourage anyone to do so. The strike committee was in favour of the settlement proposals, and arranged a ballot the workers, but the negotiations had only been with the shipyard employers. The engineering, building and electrical employers still insisted on 47 hours. Workers voted 8,774, to 11,963 against the settlement terms. Belfast employers, newspapers and councillors were making louder demands for stern measures against the strikers. The mayor invited citizen volunteers to break the strike. Troops moved into the gasworks and power station. The men were told to return to work, and most did. Seizing their advantage, the engineering employers announced the reopening of their firms and shipyards with a 47-hour week. The demoralised strike committee made no attempt to picket the power station or gas works and on Monday night, 17th of February, they decided to recommend a return to work. Their announcement of a new ballot met with shouts of sellout. The strikers voted union by union, but their morale broken. 20 out of 22 unions voted to resume work and the others accepted the decision. By Thursday, the strike was over. Two decisions of the strike committee ensured the strike's defeat the failure to call out the transport workers and the failure to challenge the military occupation of the power station and the gas works. The strike committee was trying to fight its battles by the rules. The employers had no such scruples. Three members of the strike committee had been Labour election candidates, but others were members of the Ulster Unionist Labour Association, set up to counter Labourism in the working class and keep it loyal to the Unionist Party. This motley composition produced the resolve to keep the strike non-political. The vast majority of the strikers were unionist by upbringing and tradition. The strike brought them into conflict with the unionist establishment, 
with a strike committee reduced its politics to the level of the Unionist Labour Association. Workers' Union member Jack O'Hagan made the only serious attempt to talk about socialism, capitalism and class war. He held daily meetings at the City Hall and put the socialist case. On Thursday the 30th of January, a strike committee member interrupted, announcing that the committee wanted no unauthorised meetings. The greatest labour upheaval in Belfast's history left scarcely a ripple on the political consciousness of the city's workers. There can be no better proof of the need for a socialist party which can not only take the lead in such struggles, but constantly draw the lessons of them and take advantage of the heightened political interest and involvement of the workers at such a time to hammer these lessons home. Who's Peace? The 11th of November 1918 had been merely an armistice. The war would not be officially over until peace terms had been negotiated. The victorious Allied countries began six months of talk in Paris in January 1919 before compelling Germany to sign the treaty that ended the war at Versailles on the 28th of June. The treaty required Germany to accept all responsibility for the war, to disarm, concede territory and pay reparations later set at 132 billion marks, 284 billion pounds today. Economist John Maynard Keynes, a British delegate to the peace conference, criticised the terms as too harsh on Germany and warned of the consequences. The humiliation and economic distress imposed on Germany would fertilise the ground for a rise of populist nationalism in that country. On the 12th of September 1919, Adolf Hitler joined the tiny but virulently racist Workers' Party and the next month made his first public speech. In Britain, the government declared the 19th of July as Peace Day, encouraging celebrations across the country to mark the end of the war. The new cenotaph was unveiled the day before, and many people joined events on the day itself. But in some places, Peace Day struck a bitter note. In Luton, Henry Impey invited his friends, fellow councillors and assorted wartime profiteers to a sumptuous mayoral banquet at the town hall. No one on the guest list had fought in the war. The local Discharged Soldiers and Sailors Association asked for permission to hold a peace day service in Wardown Park, but the council refused. So the ex-servicemen and their supporters marched to the town hall with floats in a band, and when Mayor Impey persisted in his arrogant, self-satisfied, exclusive banquet, they burned the town hall down. Two days later, protesters burned down a commemorative flagstaff outside Swindon Town Hall in protest at lavish spending on peace memorials but little on relieving poverty. For these working class people, remembrance of their fallen mates did not mean standing in solemn silence next to the politicians and generals who had sent them to war. It meant fighting noisily in civilian life for their share of the peace. There were several organisations of ex-servicemen. The National Federation of Discharged Soldiers and Sailors was left-wing, with membership open only to rank-and-file fighting men, not to officers. The smaller National Union of Ex-Servicemen was even more left-wing. The Comrades of the Great War, though, was right-wing, highly patriotic, led by officers and linked to the Conservative Party. It would be a few years before the military establishment, in the person of General Haig, persuaded the two main groups to drop their politics and merge. In the early post-war years, the 11th of November was a day of protest. In 1922, 25,000 people marched past the Cenotaph, demonstrating against ex-services poverty, led by a wreath inscribed with the words, quote, from the living victims, the unemployed, to our dead comrades who died in vain, end quote. Around the hot summertime of Peace Day 1919, rioting took place in Birmingham, Coventry, 
Wolverhampton and elsewhere. Anger was abundant, but political shape and leadership was lacking. Hands off Russia. On the 18th of January 1919 in London, a mass meeting launched Hands Off Russia, a campaign to oppose British support for the White Army's attack on Bolshevik Russia. The campaign's National Committee brought together the scattered sections of the British left, the British Socialist Party, Independent Labour Party, Workers' Socialist Federation and Socialist Labour Party. Sylvia Pankhurst wrote in August that, quote, Hands Off Russia has found its way into the resolution of every Labour and Socialist propaganda meeting and literature about Russia has been more eagerly read than any other, end quote. All year, Russia defended itself from attack in a bloody and terrible military conflict. Russia's enemies pursued deadly anti-Semitism, with many pogroms and massacres of Jews in Ukraine and Poland. On the 2nd of March, meetings around Britain protested against conscription, but war against Russia continued. In August, British forces used chemical weapons against Bolshevik-held villages south of Archangel. British troops were unhappy. In June, soldiers refused to advance against the Bolsheviks at the Davina River. In late August, Marines were ordered to attack the Red Army at Koikori village, but on the 5th of September, members of the 6th Battalion British Royal Marines refused to continue the attack. In October, 150 sailors broke out of their ships at Port Edgar, West Lothian refusing to sail to the Baltic. On the 2nd of March, Bolshevik supporters from around the world founded the Third International. In May, it launched its journal, the Communist International. Encouraged, revolutionaries in the USA organised. John Reed, who wrote the eyewitness account of the 1917 Russian Revolution, Ten Days That Shook the World, started the New York Communist. Expelled from the Socialist Party, American left-wingers formed two communist parties, which merged in 1921. In May 1919, Antonio Gramsci and other Italian socialists began publishing the pro-Soviet newspaper Lodine Nuovo, The New Order, and two months later, Italian workers took strike action in solidarity with Soviets in Russia and Hungary. Elsewhere, workers established Soviet rule but sadly were defeated, usually very bloodily, by surrounding capitalist states. On the 27th of May, Bolsheviks and their allies tried to establish Soviet power in the Romanian city of Benderi, but were beaten on the same day by Romanian and French troops. The Slovak Socialist Republic was created on the 16th of June with the help of the Hungarian Soviet Republic, but was defeated on the 7th of July by Czech and Romanian armies. But in Britain, the communists still not organised themselves into a party. In October, The Guardian published an interview with Russian leader Vladimir Lenin, who pointed out that, quote, Russia has no laws against propaganda by British people. England has such laws, therefore Russia is the more liberal-minded. End quote. Lenin advised that, quote, the British communists should unite their four parties and groups into a single communist party on the basis of the principles of the Third International and of our obligatory participation in Parliament. At present, British communists very often find it hard even to approach the masses and even to get a hearing from them. End quote. The groups which supported the revolution and wanted to form a communist party were negotiating among themselves but moving slowly. One of the main sticking points was disagreement about participation in parliament and affiliation to the Labour Party. The foundation in 1920 of the Communist Party, the CPGB, would be a leap forward for class politics in Great Britain. But while the working class struggled in 1919, that party did not yet even exist. 